All right, take a Bible out and a page of notes. There's some in the front, some in the back if you didn't pick some of those up. We are talking tonight about doxology, and we've already done it. Now we're going to talk about it. Um, These last few topics that we're covering on Wednesday nights are still doctrinal. It's still matters of theology that fall under this umbrella of systematic theology. But it's beginning to be a little bit more practical. It's beginning to be a little more hands-on in how we sort of experience uh, our relationship with God and how we experience what it means to be a spiritual person. And worship is certainly part of that. One of the things you've probably noticed over the last few weeks, Corey taught last week and some of the recent lessons, you'll notice it tonight and the next few weeks, is that uh, there's a lot of overlap in topics in systematic theology. You can't really just sort of separate one topic without touching on other issues. And so when you've spent 15 weeks or so talking about different doctrines, there's going to be a lot of carryover in things that we've already talked about that are going to influence what we talk about tonight and what we talk about the next few weeks. Just a few vocabulary words to start off. The word doxology usually refers to uh, possibly the song that we just sang or a similar song, a short hymn of praise to God. It's often sung at sort of the end of a worship service or maybe a certain part of a worship service. Corey told me this week the church that he grew up in always sang the doxology right after the offering. And so in a lot of churches, maybe churches that you grew up in or have attended in the past, that's just a regular, consistent part of the worship service. It comes from the Greek word doxologia, uh, which is made up of two then sort of root words, doxa, which means glory, and logia, which means saying. Um, And so you can see that it's sort of saying a word of glory or ascribing glory to God is this idea of doxology. A related term, just to talk about the English language for a little bit, you're not going to find some of this history in the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament, but the, the English word worship comes from the Old English word worth-ship, to ascribe worth to someone or to something. And that's sort of the, the root idea or the historical idea behind the word worship, is that you are ascribing worth to God for who he is and for what he's done. So sometimes we use different words for this. We use praise, we use worship, uh, we use different terms to describe what we do in church uh, as we're praising and worshiping and glorifying God. Some of you may have been part of churches. Um, I've never been a member of one of these churches, but I know of these churches and I've, I've served short periods in some of these churches where They try to make a distinction between praise and worship, like praise is one thing and worship is another thing. Uh, In one church that I served in for a summer, um, in helping to lead the worship, the music part of the service, there was like a, a distinction they tried to make between like, this is a praise song and it goes here, and then this is a worship song and it goes here. And I remember when we would have these conversations, I would say, I don't understand the difference between a praise song and a worship song. Is it like the copyright date makes the difference in which one it is? Or if it's in a book or on the internet, I don't understand. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that that's really a helpful thing uh, to try to distinguish those things when you're talking about worship. Um, sometimes when you are working to understand something, it's helpful to just stop and say what that thing is not. 
And so we do that, we did that when we talked about God. Not only did we say he is this and these are his attributes, but we also said he's not like this. You can sort of define by negation. And I think that's helpful to do just at the beginning of a, a talk about worship. And I don't have this on your notes. I didn't have space to put everything in your notes. But let's just throw a few ideas out there that worship is not before we talk about what it is. Okay, Worship is not entertainment. And for some people, when I say entertainment in the context of worship, you immediately think of big fancy production, lots and lots of stuff. And that's certainly one of the things that I'm talking about, you know, just sort of a big over-the-top uh, production. Somebody was sharing with me just tonight that they had visited a church and they had rain on the stage and they had flowers dropping down from the stage and the worship leader even got rained on at one point. How many of you would like to see that, Tyler, get rained on? We can just, somebody climb up there and drop a bucket on his head right in the middle of the worship service. And... Uh, there's churches that do just all kinds of crazy stuff. Somebody told me uh, recently about it. They went to a church service. This was closer to around Christmas, and it snowed in the church service. Just all the way through the church service, it had snow coming down. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong or sinful, uh, but at some point you cross the line from worship to entertainment. And you understand, because you guys are smart guys and gals, that that can look very quote-unquote contemporary, and it can also look very traditional and still take on many aspects of entertainment, okay? Now, let's be honest when it comes to entertainment. There are some people who would come to our church on a Sunday morning and say, that's just a show, it's entertainment. Why, like, why do you have to do it that way? Why do you have to have this? Why do you have to have that? You're just putting on a show. And I don't feel like that we're putting on a show. I don't feel like what we're doing is entertainment. But you understand that some people would think that. They would come to our worship service and they would feel like, oh, this isn't worship. This is just a big show. So I guess we can admit that there's a little bit of gray in there, you know. It's not like necessarily a, you're in the worship category or you're in entertainment and there's nothing in between. There's probably some room for debate in there. But just because it's hard to define in the next hour or two when it's daytime and when it exactly becomes nighttime as the sun's going down, right? There's sort of some inner, uh, what is it right now? When it's midnight, you know it's midnight. And when it's noon, you know it's noon. And so there may be a little bit of space in there where we can say, yeah, I'm not really sure if that would be too much entertainment or more worship or whatever. But there would also be some situations where we say, that is entertainment. It's not worship. That's a show. Nothing but a show. And what we're talking about tonight is not entertainment. It's also not experience. Worship is not experience. And um, kind of a, a trendy thing these days is instead of using the word worship service to use the term worship experience. We have a worship experience at such and such time. We have a worship experience at such and such time. And again, I don't think that it's necessarily like, you know, you're a wicked, immoral, devil-loving church if you call what you do in the sanctuary worship experience. But I think words matter. And I think what those churches are communicating to people is we want you to come and have some sort of experience where you feel a certain way or, you, you know, you're moved a certain way. And I just want you to understand you can come to church and not get super, super overly emotional and sing the songs and you don't have to have 
a lump in your throat or tears in your eyes or anything like that, and it's worship. And so if you begin to define worship as an experience, like I felt a certain way, then you've missed the biblical idea of worship a little bit. Um, Worship is not performance. Just one last word. It's not performance. And I have a lot of friends at a church right now that are sort of wrestling with this issue. And it is not on the contemporary end of things that they're wrestling with it. It's on the traditional end of things. And there's sort of a transition taking place in the church. And it's become clear in this particular situation that there's a group of people who want the performance and the feeling and the aura and all of the stuff that goes along with a choir wearing certain robes and singing certain songs at a certain time of the day. And they don't want any of those things touched. And it's just, it's a performance for them. It's not something that they're participating in. It's something that they're coming to sit and to look at and to enjoy. And when you begin to talk about those things, you're not talking about worship. Here's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. I know we quote him a lot, but he's a super quotable guy. And I like what he says about worship here. As long as you notice and you have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but you're only learning to dance. A good shoe is not, a good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Excuse me. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one where we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. And I think that's a good idea. Sometimes we just begin to pigeonhole worship into, i got to feel a certain way, we got to do a certain thing, it's got to be a certain whatever. And I think that's a pretty good perspective to say, no, the best worship service would be one that you didn't even notice at all. You just, all you thought about was God. You were drawn to God. Your thoughts were on God. Your heart felt close to God. And so I think that's a good place to start. What do I need to know about doxology? What do I need to know about worship? Five thoughts, and then we'll talk about application. Number one, broadly, worship is anything we do, say, think, or feel that brings glory to God. Anything you do, your actions, anything you say, which is your words, anything you think, which is your mental life, or anything that you feel, which is your emotional life, that brings glory to God. And this is just sort of a broad definition. Okay, When we throw this definition out, what we're trying to say is worship is not something we only do in this room. right? It extends to every area of your life. And the things that you do, the things that you say, the things that you think, the things that you feel. When all of those things ascribe worth to God... You're worshiping. And the the classic verse for this is Romans 12. So take your Bible and look at Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's not saying spiritual worship is when you go to church and for the 30 minutes before the sermon you sing songs with a choir or a band or a worship leader or whoever. He's saying you need to present your body to God as a living sacrifice. Every aspect of your life needs to be offered up to God. Your words, your actions, your thoughts, your emotions. And when you do that, 
That is your spiritual act of worship. And he's given you this broad definition of what it looks like. And if you keep reading in the book of Romans, he begins to get very practical about what your life and your words and your thoughts and your emotions ought to look like as you're worshiping God in this broad sense. And I've given you a whole bunch of other verses here that we're not going to look up. I'll just tell you why I gave you these verses. In the book of Psalms and in the book of Proverbs, there are multiple and repeated commands for you and I to feel certain things. And we talked about this a little bit. I don't remember if it was this last Sunday or recently, but part of worship is feeling the right emotions. And not feeling the right emotions can be a sinful thing for us. And a lot of times we say, yeah, sin is anything you do, say, or think that doesn't honor God. But it's also about your heart and the emotions that you feel and the desires that you have. And you know that that's true because in the book of Psalms, I gave you these verses in Psalms, just a few of the many verses that tell you you are to delight yourself in the Lord. That involves something that you feel, delight. Like I delight in my kids. I delight in Kansas Jayhawk basketball. I delight in great food at Emma's Express. All of these things make me feel a certain way, right? And the psalmist says over and over and over again, you ought to delight in the Lord. That's a feeling that you ought to feel towards him, and it's commanded to us. And then you come to the book of Proverbs, and I gave you just a few of the many verses that say you ought to fear God. That involves emotion. It involves your heart as you stand before God and the emotions that you feel in your relationship with him. So broadly speaking, it's anything we do say, think, or feel that brings glory to God. Now we'll narrow it down. Okay, number two. Narrowly, worship refers, and I just stole this definition because I didn't think I could top it, to the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. Our voices and hearts. I know that I've told you guys about this before, but I'll never forget a lady that was a member of my church in Kentucky, and in the course of conversation one day, she said, I don't sing. I said, what do you mean you don't sing? She said, I don't ever sing. I don't sing in church. I don't ever sing. You don't sing in the shower? You don't sing in the car? You don't sing when you're, she lived out in the country, beautiful property. You don't sing when you're walking through your property? Do you sing in your mind? Do you? No, I don't sing. I just listen. And we kind of had a, a little bit of a conversation about, you know, the Bible commands you to open your mouth, to sing. And you don't have to be a great vocalist like Tony or Shannon or some of the folks that, that lead us on Sundays. But you're commanded to open your mouth and to praise him verbally, vocally, with sound coming out of your mouth. And it has to be from your heart. As well, It can't just be an external, ritualistic sort of thing that you're going through the motions, but it has to be from your heart as well. Um, and just take a time out after number one and two as you look at those on your outline. I just want to point out to you one of the strange things about Christianity, especially in the Bible Belt, okay? Where we're just sort of, sometimes we get sp- sucked into this lie or we're just sort of plastered over with this veneer of Christianity where you have a lot of people where we live in this part of the country who feel like I can go to church and do number two I'm going to go and I'm going to sing and I'm going to mean it and I'm going to feel all these things but number one is not so much important 
Like they segregate worship out to something that only happens at church because we still live in a part of the country where church attendance, church participation is kind of an expected thing on some level. It's still a respectable thing. You don't see that on some of the coasts of the country. But here it's still like, well, where do you go to church? Don't you go to church? You should go to church. Everybody kind of has this feeling like I ought to go to church somewhere. And so there's a lot of people that have this idea of, well, worship is something I'm going to go do when I go to church. I'm going to sing these songs, I'm going to say the things, and I'm going to feel close to God. But then during the week, I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. And I don't have to honor God with my actions and my words and my thoughts and my feelings the rest of the week. As long as I go to the right place and say the right things on Sunday. Meaning, as long as I do number two, number one doesn't matter. And you understand that just because we have a broad definition and a narrow definition doesn't mean you get to pick one or the other, right? It also doesn't mean you get to pick number one and forget number two. Like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to try to be a nice person. I'm going to try to honor God in my life and be kind to people and do what God would want me to do. But as for going to church and actually singing and participating, that's not that important to me. That's not that high on my list, and I really have to do that. Both of those things are part of worship, and they go together. And we, we've got this broad picture and this narrow picture, and together they give us a full picture of what worship is. Okay, number three, what do you need to know? You need to know that God calls his people, he calls out his people, so that they might worship him. He calls out his people so that they might worship him. And I'd like to look at two of these verses. Let's look at Exodus 7. Verse 16. You'll find this a few different places in Exodus. Exodus seven sixteen. It's talking about the first plague of water being turned to blood and Moses confronting Pharaoh. And in verse 16... We read this, you shall say to him, Moses shall say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that, so that, in order that they may serve me in the wilderness. Literally in order that they may worship me in the wilderness. And God is saying to Pharaoh, and he says it multiple times, I'm calling these people out from your midst so that they can come out and worship me. It's not only that I want to set them free. It's that I want them to be out from under your thumb so that they can serve me and they can worship me. And you see the same idea in the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter. Now we're going all the way to the back. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9 and 10. Says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so that, in order that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's saying, God has called you out. You used to not belong to God. Now you belong to God. And the heart of it is right in the middle so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out 
of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is a really important idea to understand when you're thinking about worship, right? Our worship is a response to God's revelation and God's salvation. Meaning, we talked about revelation way at the beginning. We're not talking about the book of Revelation. We're talking about God revealing himself to us. Unless God shows us and tells us what he's like, we have nothing to do with worship. Like, he speaks first to us. We see him in creation. We see him through conscience. We see him most clearly in the scriptures. He speaks to us, and we respond with worship. And he saves us so that we can worship. Sin leaves us in a state where we naturally don't worship God. We don't have hearts to worship him. We don't have hearts that love him. We don't have hearts that see him as beautiful or as valuable or as great or as anything. And he calls us out of that, out of the darkness, into light so that we can worship him. So our worship is a response to him calling us out to be his people. Number four, we worship God for who he is and for what he's done. For who he is and for what he's done. Look at Psalm 150. Psalm 150, just the first two verses. Psalmist says this, Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. Here it comes in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. So we're praising him for what he does, his mighty deeds. Then he says, praise him according to his excellent greatness. That's who he is. And both of those things go side by side. We worship God, we praise God because he's God and his greatness is excellent. And we praise him for the mighty things that he's done for his people in history. And it's just, I know this is obvious, this is the most simple, obvious application or, or thought that you've ever heard coming out of Psalm 150 verse 2. But if you're going to praise God, if you are called and commanded to praise God for who he is, you have to know who he is. Like more than just he's God. This vague idea that there's someone or something or some power up there. It's not going to cut it. You praise him for his excellent greatness. Well, you got to know what's great about him. What's so excellent about him? That's why way back at the beginning when we're laying a foundation in systematic theology, we talk about the doctrine of God. What's he like? What are his attributes? What is his character? And you praise him for his mighty deeds, meaning you've got to know what it is that he's done. You've got to know the stories of how he saved his people in Egypt, how he saved his people through exile, how he saved his people through Jesus Christ. All of these mighty things that God has done for his people ought to move us to worship. Number five, Ten Commandments begin with instruction about who and how we should worship. I'm going to let you look these up on your own. You'll find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And they talk about who you can worship and how you should worship. And they're just big overarching principles that govern our praise and our worship and how we glorify God. We're going to come back to that idea that God gives us instruction about how to worship. So why do we need to know about doxology, about worship? Why does it matter? There's some really 
big reasons, and I just finally quit writing them down when I got to number nine. So here we go. Number one, we are created to worship. That's why God made you. That's why you exist, to worship him, to praise him, to glorify him. And you see that throughout Scripture. I didn't give you verses that relate directly to that, but you know that it's true. He created his people to bring glory to him, to worship him, to honor him, to praise him. And if that's true, that that's what you were created to do, you will find your deepest joy and your greatest satisfaction in life when you do what God made you to do. And running away from that purpose will bring no happiness, no joy, no peace, no pleasure to your life. You'll find your greatest joy when you do what God created you to do. And I want you to look at these verses from the book of Psalms. We're going to look at all three of them. Talking about how we find this joy, how we find this satisfaction. And all of them say it's by doing what God created us to do. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You just, if you're looking at your your notes, you go back to the first thing that we said. What do I need to know uh, about, uh, excuse me, the second thing. What do I need to know about doxology? Narrowly, it's glorifying God in his presence. You come into the presence of God in worship. And the psalmist says, when I come to that place for that purpose, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Not just joy, but the absolute fullness of the joy that I could ever experience in your presence. And at your right hand there's pleasures forevermore. Look at Psalm 27.4. Same idea. It says, one thing I have asked of the Lord... That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to be in his presence. That's the one thing that I'm asking for. The one thing I'm seeking for is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To be with God and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I just want to gaze and soak in and take in all of your beauty and all of your majesty. Because when I'm in that place, in that position of worship, I'm doing what I was created to do. That's the one thing that I want. Psalm 73, verse 25. In verse 26. Says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. Meaning, in all of heaven, the only thing I want is you. I don't have anyone else, anything else in heaven that takes your place. And on the earth, there's nothing that I desire beside you. You have no equal, nothing to compare you to. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Down below he says, it is good for me to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You're created to worship. When you do what God has created you to do, you find your deepest, most genuine and lasting joy in life. Number two, this is just flowing out of that same idea. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone. No one doesn't get to worship. No one gets to say, I'm going to be neutral. 
you will worship someone or something. Maybe yourself, maybe your job, maybe money, maybe another person, maybe your status or power, maybe your children, maybe your favorite sports team. Could be any number of things that you worship. But everyone ascribes worth and value to someone and to something. And the question is, what is it that you ascribe supreme worth and value to? So I'm going to quote two great theologians here. You ready? Theologian number one, Bob Dylan. (laughs) Wrote a song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And the chorus goes like this. You're going to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Then I'm just going to read you the rest of the lyrics, okay? You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief. You may be a state trooper. You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame, you may be living in another country under another name. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns, you might even own tanks. You might be someone's landlord, you might even own banks. You might be a preacher with your spiritual pride. Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair, you may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. You may like to wear cotton, may like to wear silk, may like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk. Might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread, you may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-size bed. You may call me Terry, you may call me Timmy, you may call me Bobby, you may call me Zimmy. I think he's just running out of stuff at this point, but you may call me RJ, you may call me Ray, you may call me anything, but no matter what you say, still you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's unavoidable. It doesn't matter who you are, but you are going to worship and serve and ascribe worth and value to someone or something. A real theologian, John Calvin, said it like this. From this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed, is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. And Calvin, long before Bob Dylan ever showed up, is saying basically the same thing. You may say to me, I'm not going to worship God, but you're going to worship something. And basically, your heart and your mind are going to work together to create some sort of idol that you're going to ascribe worth to and value to. And you're going to serve it, and you're going to worship it, and you're going to bring honor to that thing. And you can't avoid that. Everyone is a worshiper. Number three, God desires our worship, and he commands us to worship. He desires it, and he commands it. We won't look these verses up. Deuteronomy 6, 
talks about God commanding the people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. John 4 says the Father is seeking people who will worship him. He desires to have people worship him. So he desires it and he commands us to worship. Number four, this is a big one. God does not need our worship. And we're looking a lot in the book of Psalms. That shouldn't shouldn't surprise you. It's a, a book about wisdom for the purpose of worship. So look at Psalm 50, verse 7. This is a psalm of Asaph. Just read verse 7 down to verse 15. Thinking about this idea that God does not need our worship. He doesn't need anything from us. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. You see the logic in that? God's saying to him, look, you you feel like you're doing something great because you're bringing me that sacrifice. But all you're doing is bringing me what already belongs to me. It's not yours. It's mine. You may feel like you're doing something Great when you come to Emmanuel on Sunday morning and you sing those songs. That's my breath in your lungs. We sing that on Sunday morning all the time. It's not your breath, that's my breath. All you're doing is giving me what I've already given to you. I don't need any of that. Look at verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, do I really need you to do all this stuff? No. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You get what you need in the salvation, I'll deliver you. And I get what I desire and deserve, you will glorify me. That's the end of worship in this passage and all through it God is saying to his people I don't need you to do anything for me you need me to save you and I want you to worship me but I don't need anything from you and sometimes it's good just to stop and to remind ourselves that if tonight worship ceased on this earth there were no more church services No more Christian radio stations, no more Christian bands, no more choirs, no more organs, no more guitars, no Sunday morning singing. If it all stopped, you understand that would affect God zero. Would have zero impact on him. He would not be any less glorious, any less beautiful, any less powerful. He doesn't need any of it from us. He's not dependent on it in any way, shape, or form. So God does not need our worship. Number five, God is not pleased with all worship. He's not pleased with all worship. And I'm going to go ahead and give you number six, and we'll talk about both of those together. Our worship must be centered on the revealed truth about God. 
Not all worship pleases him. And our worship must be centered on the revealed truth about God. I'm going to let you look up most of those verses, I think. You remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, who had been up on Mount Sinai at one point? Sometimes we forget that part of the story. They'd been up on Sinai with Moses in the presence of the Lord, had a meal with the Lord on that mountain, had received the law and the commandments from God through Moses about how he wanted to be worshipped. And they decide on their own, even though God says do it this way, we're going to do it this way. And they bring unauthorized fire before the Lord. And we read this story where God bursts out and he kills these two brothers and we think, "Ah, that seems like a temper tantrum. But these were guys that sat and talked with God face to face and God said, do it this way. Worship me like this. And they come down from that mountain and within a matter of days they say, we'll do it our own way. And God's not pleased. You remember the story of Uzzah in the ark. Uzzah in the ark. And they're taking the ark to Jerusalem for David. And God has told them, he has told them, you carry it with poles and you cover it and nobody looks at it and nobody touches it. And they decide we're going to put it on a cart because that would be easier. And we're going to just have it open for everybody to see and we're going to make this big deal about it even though God has said to do it this way we're going to do it this way God said only the Levites can be involved in moving the ark Uzzah was not a Levite all along the way breaking God's commands of how he told them he wanted to be worshipped and God breaks out and kills this guy when he reaches out his hand to steady the ark and if there's any takeaway from that it's that you need to listen to God when he tells you how he wants to be worshipped You don't get to just make it up. You don't get to just have any old thought about what he's like and then put it into a song and sing it. Well, it might be a great song. They might play it on K-Love and it might win a Dove Award and all kinds of great things. But if it doesn't line up with the revealed truth of Scripture, it's worthless and it doesn't honor God and it doesn't please God. You say, all the churches are singing it and when we sing it, I just get the warm fuzzies and I love it so much and... It's the greatest. It doesn't matter. It's got to line up with the truth of God's word. Exodus 32. Think about the golden calf, right? You remember what they called that golden calf? The Lord. They called it Yahweh. In their minds, they weren't worshiping a different God. They were just coming up with a new way to worship Yahweh. They called it the Lord. They didn't call it Baal. They didn't call it Ra. They didn't make up some new name. They said, this is Yahweh. This is the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Go back and read it. And God says, that doesn't honor me at all. You don't get to do this any way that you want to do it. John 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus says, you Samaritans are worshiping in ignorance. God wants people who worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what the Father's seeking. Number seven, worship must be centered on Christ. Must be centered on Christ. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, there's one name given among men under heaven by which you may be saved. Only one name. 
1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. You must have worship that is centered on Jesus. And really what I'm trying to drive at here is vague, generic, vanilla worship to God is not enough. Like, just because someone says, I believe in God, doesn't mean they're a Christian. You understand that? Just because a movie comes out and it's called a faith-based film and they talk about God in it doesn't make it a Christian movie. Or because you buy a novel at the Christian bookstore and they talk about God from time to time in there doesn't mean that it's a Christian novel, a Christ-centered novel or movie or song. Our worship has to be Christ-focused. He's our mediator. Number eight, worship must be private and corporate. Private and corporate. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So take that verse and you say, not all worship pleases God. These guys thought that they were worshiping God and God wasn't pleased with it at all. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying there's got to be a part of your life where you're worshiping in private. Just you and the Lord. Personal devotion time, personal prayer time, personal worship time. It has to be that way. When you do it, do it like this. Now flip over and look at Acts chapter 2. See the corporate side of this. Starting in verse 42, Acts 2, 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Everything in that passage says they're doing it together. They're doing it together. They're worshiping together. They're praising together. So there's a private side to worship and a corporate side. One last idea is this. Worship is an eternal activity. An eternal activity. This is where we'll, I want to put away the Sunday school answer for a minute and let's be honest. Okay? The Sunday school answer is to say, last point, worship is an eternal activity. Boy, I can't wait. That's going to be great. And some of you hear that and you're like, eternal? Like it's never going to end? And some of you, if you're really honest, you kind of dread that. And if you dread it, being honest, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or be honest. If you dread it, you're sort of missing two truths to worship, okay? Number one, you're missing the truth that we talked about where we say God created you to do it. And when you do it, you find your deepest and greatest joy. You've missed that part of worship. And it's just something that you're forced to do. And you've got to change your thinking on that. 
Some of you may be dreading it because when you read that and you say worship is an eternal activity, you're only thinking about the narrow definition of worship. And what you have in mind is a choir rehearsal that never ends. Or you're thinking about like Tyler up on the stage and he just, it's song after song after song and they never stop and you don't get to sit down and you just think we're going to do this forever. Are you kidding me? Enough's enough. I can't do it forever. And there's going to be some of that in heaven. You can't deny it. Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7 all talk about it. But you've also got to remember where we started with this broad definition of worship. Anything you do, anything you say, anything you think, anything you feel that ascribes worth to God, that also is part of our worship. So look at Revelation 7. Let's look at these verses. We'll end with these. Revelation 7. This is going to give you the sort of the narrow picture of worship as we're corporately together before the throne. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Remember, God calls his people out to worship him. They've been called out from every nation. All tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne. Yes, there will be standing. Before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. It will be loud. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying... Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the narrow picture of worship where you're in God's immediate presence and you're aware of that. And with your mouth and with your heart, you're praising him and you're ascribing worth to him. And Revelation says there's going to be some of that in heaven. Now look at Revelation chapter 21. We won't read all of the passage I gave you. Just part of Revelation 21. We'll get to verse 22. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the picture is that there's a city coming down from heaven to the new earth. So when you think about eternity, you shouldn't so much think about floating on clouds, but you should think about a city that God is going to bring down to a new earth, a physical city. It's going to have walls, and it's going to have buildings, and you're going to be able to walk through the streets, you're going to be able to do things. He says this city is coming down, and he describes it in what follows. And look at Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into this city, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about eternity and heaven and hell and some of these things. But the picture you see in Revelation 21 and 22 is there's going to be time when you're standing around the throne and you're praising and you're singing and you're falling down on your face and it's loud and it's narrow worship. There's also going to be this broad picture of worship where you live in a new earth, in the new creation, in the new city that God has brought down from heaven. And all of the things that you do and all of the things that you say and all of the things that you think and that you feel are going to ascribe worth to God. And your existence in that city is going to be different than your existence now. But your existence in that city is going to be a lot closer to life on this earth than it is floating on a cloud somewhere and just looking at rainbows up in the sky forever. It's going to be a real city. What do you do in a real city? Well, you probably play music if you like to play music. And you probably build things if you like to build things. And you probably plant a garden if you like to plant a garden. And you probably go for walks if you like to go for walks. You probably do physical things like we do today. And this broad definition of worship comes into play. We'll talk more about that in the next few weeks as we talk about heaven a little bit. So let me mention a few books, and we'll call it quits on doxology. Um, One of the books I mentioned on your sheet or listed on your sheet is by Louis Giglio, and it's called The Air I Breathe. And I put this one on here as an easy read. It's The actual book is right at 100 pages, and they're really small pages and pretty big type. So this is the kind of book you can sit down and knock out really, really quick. But it's a really good read. Uh, It's called The Air I Breathe, Worship as a Way of Life. And this book is about the broad definition of worship, meaning not just about what you do when you're at church, when you're singing, but how do you live your life in a way that honors God and ascribes worth to Him. So it's a, a really good book. Um, one of the books I mentioned is called Awe. It's by Paul Tripp. And I put this book on your list because it also gives you this big view of worship, a broad definition of worship, that it ought to extend past the worship time or the worship hour in your church. And I like the book because it really is a thought-provoking book. Some books you just read along and you say, yeah, 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 okay, okay, that's good, that's good, that's good. Paul Tripp is the kind of author, at least when I read him, I think, I've never thought about it that way. I've never considered that aspect of it. And he he makes me think, and he's easy to read. He's not hard to read, but he really does make you chew things over. And so this is a great book about awe and worship. And then I listed a book by D.A. Carson called Worship by the Book. And if you're curious about what worship ought to look like in church from a biblical perspective... This is a great book to read, and it has a couple of different authors in it, and one guy is an Anglican, one guy is a Baptist, and one guy is a Presbyterian. So you got all kinds of different perspectives, and they disagree about a lot of things, but they agree about an awful lot of things, and they say, this is what biblical worship has to look like. And it can take a little bit of different form in a Baptist church than a Presbyterian or an Anglican, but these are the essentials, and it's a super helpful book. So... There you go, a few books to read if you're interested in studying about worship.